Please open your Bible to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. You'll find the notes of this morning's message in the bulletin. You'll find the text on the back of the bulletin if you don't have a Bible. This week we continue our study through Jesus' encounter with the woman of the well in the Samaritan village. Um, probably going to take us five weeks to get through that, this being the third. There's just so much material here. I do hope this morning we'll, we'll complete Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well. And as we read this text, uh, there's one main point I hope you get from this. There's many points here, but one main point, and that is the good news that God is seeking true worshipers. It's amazingly good news when we understand it. God is seeking true worshipers. So we're going to consider what that means, what true worship is. We're going to learn some lessons on evangelism. But first and foremost, not only was God doing that 2,000 years ago, but today, this morning, God is seeking true worshipers. I'd like to begin just by reading John 4, 1 through 26. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field where Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that was saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands. And the one you have now is not your husband. What you said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers 
will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let's pray. Lord God, what glorious truth is this, that your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, deserving of all glory and honor, would humble himself, would reach out, speak to, show love and compassion to this Samaritan woman. I pray that as we study this encounter, we might be given eyes to see and ears to hear, that we would see your glory more fully, that we would understand your grace that superabounds, that we might worship you in truth and in spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. A couple things to frame this with. Chapter 4, here's an observation of chapter of John, follows after chapter 3. John, yes, bear with me. Um, All will become clear. John has put these two accounts, these two extended dialogues, back to back. And, And there's both contrast and similarity. By way of contrast, I would suggest to you that Nicodemus and his privilege and his ability and and what he has available to him and this woman could not be further apart. You've got the Jews who have been given the oracles of God. You've got a male Jew. You've got a rabbi, a Pharisee, the teacher in Israel, and some geopolitical power. He's a ruler of the people. As far as religion, morality, civic virtue go, this guy is at the top. On the other end, we have the Samaritans. And we consider that from their inception, without break, without alteration, they have done wickedly. From Jeroboam, who set up the two um, bull idols that the people worshipped, to the refusal to go to Jerusalem to worship and, and making Mount Samaria a location of worship, to the unbreaking line of wicked kings to their judgment and deportation, their intermarriage with the pagans, and then their, their combination or their attempt to combine the worship of the living God and his word with the worship of Baal, Ashtaroth, and the other gods. How they hindered Zerubbabel and the Jews returning from exile as they attempted to rebuild the temple. This is not a story of the misunderstood people. The Samaritans Their history is an unbroken track record of faithlessness, evil, idolatry, and rebellion. We we should understand why the Jews despised them. It's not the story of the poor, misunderstood people. The problem is the Jews' self-righteousness. Part of what Jesus is saying to John, part of the whole purpose of John the Baptist's baptism is that these Jews needed to recognize that they are just as filthy, just as unclean as the Gentiles. But not only is this woman a Samaritan, but she's a woman, and she's a woman who is grossly immoral. She's living with her boyfriend now. She's been married five times, almost certainly an adulteress. We considered that might explain why she's coming to a well at high noon in the heat of the day, possibly to avoid other people, likely an outcast even of her own people. So in one sense, Nicodemus and the woman at the well could not be more opposite. And Jesus' interaction and tone with them is strikingly different. 
But in other senses, there are similarities, as you will see. Jesus spoke to Nicodemus, and you remember in his encounter with Nicodemus that he began to speak to Nicodemus using plural yous, as though Nicodemus were standing in front of and representing a group of people. And we considered that Nicodemus and his spiritual privilege and sense of self-accomplishment represented an entire group of people who believed something about Jesus, but were trusting in their own ability. And he humbled Nicodemus. You and those like you cannot even see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. He emphasized Nicodemus' absolute dependence on a work of God in his heart that he could not muster up. No amount of study could make happen. Unless the Spirit births you and you are born from above, you cannot see, you cannot understand. Well, Jesus will speak with this, to this woman as though she represents some people as well. And he'll indict their religion as well. There, there are some notable similarities. The, the topic of the Spirit is central in both passages. Last week we considered that when Jesus offered her living water, the living water he's offering her is the gift of God, the Holy Spirit. So John 3 is the necessity of birth from the Spirit. John 4, the free gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit. There, there are the similarities. Similarities line up. We're going to look at this in three points, focusing on worship. Your first point, the foundation of true worship. The foundation of true worship. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Now, I'm putting a break there because Jesus first addresses the answer to her question, and then he moves forward. So we're looking first at the foundation of true worship. And we begin with this woman has a confession and an implied question. A confession and an implied question. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. So don't miss this. She owns her sin. She owns her sin. What do I mean by that? Jesus has just declared, you've had five husbands, the man you're living with isn't your husband. She doesn't dodge. She doesn't say, who told you? Nuh-uh. Well, you don't understand. She takes it right on the chin, you're a prophet, which is to say you've spoken truly. She's an interesting study here. And I don't want to overly um, make her look too righteous or too good. Even at the end of this encounter, she's leaving only saying, could this be the Messiah? I think she comes to faith. But I don't want to make her too good or too bad. She takes it on the chin. Jesus tells her her shame, announces it. And her response is, you are a prophet. She recognizes the truth of what Jesus says. She doesn't try to shirk it off. Good for her, as far as that goes. Good for her. More importantly, for the Samaritans, confessing Jesus to be a prophet is significant. You remember, I, as we understand how the Samaritans tried to piece together and hobble together their religion, they only recognized the books of Moses as scripture. And the reason for that is because Jeroboam recognized that if the people went to Jerusalem three times a year, which Deuteronomy 18 tells them to do, their hearts would return to the line of David and, and he would die. And since Deuteronomy only says you are to go to the place that I will choose, but doesn't say where that place is, if they only recognize the books of Moses, they could then say the Lord chose someplace different. 
And so consequently, the greatest figure in the Pentateuch that the Jews are expecting and who the Samaritans are expecting, turn with me to, uh, to Deuteronomy, please. Deuteronomy 18. This is significant, and, and we'll be talking about this a few more times this morning, is the coming prophet. The coming prophet, Deuteronomy 18. We remember the, the Pharisees, the delegation sent by the Pharisees in Jerusalem to question John the Baptist. They asked him, are you the prophet? Deuteronomy 18. And so the, the, the Samaritans didn't recognize, didn't have in that sense, because they rejected it, the, the Davidic covenant, Psalm 2, Psalm 110. But they did have Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. Then down in verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Now, now flip over to Deuteronomy 34. This promise of a coming prophet like Moses to whom the people must listen is picked up again at the end of the book. The end of Deuteronomy, we get this in verse 10, 34:10. There has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. As best as we can understand, that the, Fer- the, uh, the Samaritans took this absolutely. And based on that verse, they rejected that Joshua was a prophet, that David was a prophet, that the latter prophets were prophets. So they, they took that verse as an absolute force, lingering to their day. And so they're looking for a prophet, and they recognize no in-between prophets. So it even raises the question, how, what, what is this woman really claiming? I don't think yet she's claiming Jesus is the prophet. I think perhaps she's considering it might be possible But for a Samaritan to recognize Jesus to be a prophet is significant because the next figure they're expecting and virtually the only figure they're expecting is the coming prophet. And they're noted by rejecting the latter prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. So she calls him a prophet. That, That is a good confession. That is a good confession. But then she changes the topic. I noticed this before. A week or two ago when I said, it's as though she says, yes, yeah, speaking of my five husbands, where should we worship? There's a sense of changing the topic. And, and trying to read into what she's doing here can be tricky. Some have suggested that this is absolutely sincere, that she's been troubled by this religious question of worship. And now that she recognizes Jesus as a prophet, the, the dominating concern of her heart comes to mind and she goes right there. It, that's possible. But I think the way she frames the question indicates, at least subtly, she stacks the deck. What I mean is this. Her question, as she moves now to an implied question, is this, the location of true worship. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. You, and then the blank here is all, it's plural you, you all say that in Jerusalem is the place to worship. Our fathers versus you all. It's a little stacked. What I mean by that is, surely the Jews and the Samaritans would both claim Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and his 12 sons as their fathers. She seems to be claiming them exclusively as Samaritan providence. Secondly, 
It's not that the Jews say Jerusalem is where one ought to worship God. They claim God revealed that. Their claim is their prophets. Their scripture claims that. In fact, when we read the account of God sending the man of God to Jeroboam, the first king of the northern kingdom, what would become Samaria, that prophet makes it clear to him that Jerusalem is where he had chosen to set his name. I'll just read you two of the verses. 1 Kings 11.32. But for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I have chosen. This is the prophet who comes to Jeroboam and he's saying, look, if you'll be faithful, if you won't engage in idolatry, I will establish you a dynasty. It makes it abundantly clear. So the claim is not the Jews say. The, the Jews' claim is that God says Jerusalem is the location of worship. My point simply being, she's not framing this debate Fairly, it's a little stacked. Our fathers versus you all. When the fathers really belong to both groups, and it's the, the, the Jewish claim is not that they say, but rather their scriptures say. So what, what I'm getting at is this. I, I think the Samaritan woman is leaning clearly one way, and I think what she's doing, she recognizes Jesus to be a prophet, is she's trying to figure out how hostile this prophet, she knows he's Jew, is to her. This happens commonly enough in our dealings. How, how many times have you spoken to someone, they find out you're a Christian, and they immediately go to the shibboleth of the day, the litmus test, and they want to know what your thoughts are on abortion, what your thoughts are on the LGBTQ issues, immediately. They want to find out how hostile you are, how, how diametrically opposed are we. They want to create the potential for space, right? I think something like that might be going on. Um, she recognizes Jesus as a prophet, but the, the Jews and their prophets have been historically at odds with the Samaritans, in conflict with them. And so she, she raises this question. I think she may have legitimate interest, but I think the way she frames it suggests she's leaning a certain way, and she throws it out to Jesus. So our fathers worshiped on this mountain. Mount Gerizim has got an impressive history of worship. Um, in, in the scriptures, Abraham, in, in Genesis 12, 7, worshiped there. Jacob built an altar there before he gave it to Joseph, his son, in Genesis 33. When the people of Israel entered the land in Deuteronomy 11, they were told, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, you shall set the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. And then you can read later in Deuteronomy where they, they set up this antiphonal call and response, praise and blessing and curse, and the mountain of blessing was Gerizim in there in Deuteronomy 27. So if you only had the Pentateuch, if you only had the books of Moses and you had to pick where's the central place of worship, Gerizim's probably about as likely a place as you're gonna find. It's got an impressive history. Um, so our fathers worshiped on this mountain. That's what she's saying. And as best as we can tell, Abraham, Jacob, and, and his sons worshiped here. Um, in contrast, you all say that in Jerusalem is the place, which, as I pointed out, is not really a fair construction. The Jewish claim is the living God chose this place. That's, that's the claim. So she, she raises the question. How will Jesus respond? And I think this is instructive for us because when 
uh, your friends, when people you meet, when people who don't know Jesus throw those litmus tests out at you. Oh yeah, you're a Christian, huh? What's your view on abortion? Oh yeah, you're a Christian, huh? What's your view on, and they throw it out. Gay marriage, whatever. Whatever the hot button issues are. How should we respond? I think Jesus shows us, um, as he pursues this woman evangelistically, a wise way that is committed to kindness and truth. So point B, a prophetic and challenging answer. Prophetic and challenging answers. Prophetic because Jesus, after she calls him a prophet, adopts language familiar with the Old Testament prophets. Woman, believe me, an hour is coming. That, that's prophetic language. Jesus begins speaking prophetically. And if I could sort of stand back for a moment and tell you what he's going to do, he is going to answer her question. He's not going to dodge it. And I don't think she's going to like the answer. You're, you guys are ignorant. You guys are wrong. You're worshiping what you don't understand. The Jews got it right. And he's going to say that. But before he says that, he says something kind. He says something good. He says something um, encouraging. In other words, if there is something I can say up front to let you know I'm not your enemy, I'm not opposed to you, it gets back to we can disagree and I don't hate you. He does that. And so he lays out this promise. It's as if to say, I will answer your question, but your question isn't, at the end of the day, of fundamental importance. It's going to become a moot point. So he gives her first this promise, this promise, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you, and that's a plural, you all worship the Father. That is a monumental claim. Don't don't miss it. Jesus says to a Samaritan woman, married to three men, living with her boyfriend, that she and her people will worship the Father at some point in the future. Don't miss that. The Samaritans will be included in right worship. Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you all worship the Father. Well, even as he's going to answer a question, the first thing he says is, make no mistake, you and the people behind you will, in fact, be worshiping the Father. And your question's not going to matter. But even as he's going to side with the Jews, salvation is from the Jews. Jesus will, Jesus will stand with the Jews over this debate issue of location. He's in solidarity with the Jews. He makes it clear at the forefront, whatever I'm about to say does not exclude you. You will worship the Father. Amazing statement. And they will worship the Father through the Son. We, we hear Father... And we immediately think, Father God, God's our Father. We receive a spirit of adoption. That's true. In John's gospel, though, the emphasis when God is referred to a father is father of Jesus the Son. That's John's emphasis. Jesus will begin referring to himself starting in chapter 5 as the Son. So we're not sure if Jesus is speaking in John 3.16. If he is speaking, he's already referred to himself as the only begotten Son of the Father. But John, the gospel writer, certainly has, back in the prologue, Jesus is the Son. And so when Jesus speaks of worshiping the Father, there's already being brought in a Christology, a view of Jesus as the one who mediates that worship. She's not picking this up, but the reader of the gospel is. The Father loves the Son and sends his Son, and the Son announces that these people who've been far away from God, these Samaritans, will worship the Father. We know then that that worship can only be done through the Son. So he's going to give her some hard news here. But he opens up initially by making it clear to her, you and your people, you filthy Samaritans, 
will worship the Father. And so, even as he, so one of the things we can learn from this is even as he's not going to flinch away from the truth, he's not going to make it fuzzy, what olive branches he can make, what good news he can announce, he puts up front. He says, okay, I will answer your question. But first, I want you to understand, this is a moot point. This isn't really a bedrock issue because believe me, almost like truly, truly, an hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Similar also to how he spoke to his mother Mary. Woman, my hour is not yet come. And the hour is referencing to his crucifixion, his death, burial, resurrection, and here, most specifically, the era and age that's issued in as a result of it. So that's his promise. Now he's going to re- now there's going to be a, a note of rebuke. A note of rebuke. Their ignorance, blank, ignorance. You worship what you do not know. That's got to sting. There has been, for hundreds of years, national rivalry over the legitimate place of worship. Hundreds of years with, with conflict. The shedding of blood at times, as best as we can tell from reading the intertestamental period. The Jews, when the Samaritans built their rival temple on Mount Gerizim, the Jews came over and tore it down. And, I mean, so it's not just enmity and bigotry and racial pride and vainglory, but it's actually spilled over into flesh and blood conflict. We, we read about that when the Samaritans tried to hinder the building of the temple under Zerubbabel. Hundreds of years of this. And here Jesus says, yeah, your worship is ignorant. You worship in ignorance. That, that's got a sting. Which is in part why I think Jesus put that wonderful promise forward. Even as we try to reach the lost, we cannot compromise about false religion. There's a tremendous, tremendous desire today, especially in, in, in outreach to Muslims, to, to talk about how we worship the same God. And Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus won't do that. He will be kind. He'll be compassionate. He will break the social taboos. He will bend down in humility and grace and he calls false religion, false religion. You worship what you do not know. Ouch. And then, to further add to the sting, the exclusivity. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. And again, you can imagine, just to give you a contrast, how difficult it might be for a modern Muslim living in a Muslim country, to hear the news, not just that their worship is false, you worship what you don't know, the Jews were right. Salvation is from the Jews. I'm guessing something similar with the Samaritan rivalry and the Jews would be taking place. This is gonna be a hard pill to swallow. We'll see what she makes of Jesus as a prophet on the other side of this. And so, so Jesus doesn't compromise truth. I don't think there's any bit of him enjoying or relishing the, the challenge here, but we can, in our desire to reach the lost, blunt the edges that God would have remained sharp and pointed. J- Jesus will break the social taboos, but he will not for a minute try, try, try to pretend that they have more in common than they do. And this is somebody who's got the Old Testament books of Moses. You worship what you don't know. This is similar to Paul's witnessing in Acts on Mars Hill. 
Acts 17.23, he begins, As I passed by and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, what therefore you worship is unknown, I will proclaim to you. Similar. It also means, don't miss this, even as they have the books of Moses, by rejecting God's future revelation, they lose what they already have. Remember Jesus saying, "To, to whom has little, even what he has will be taken from him. There's no hope. Well, maybe if they're just faithful with the books of Moses, even though they reject the rest of it. Maybe if they're just faithful, they'll be okay. No, no. God's truth is a whole package. You can't take some parts of it and reject other parts of it. When you reject other parts of it, you indicate you reject the whole. So Jesus speaks of their ignorance and the exclusivity. Whatever we do in witnessing, we cannot endorse false religion. We cannot validate it. We can be kind We can be generous. We can be loving. We're not being faithful. We're not following the example of Jesus when we try to pretend we and other religions worship the same God. All eight roads get there. Jesus won't compromise on that point. He won't. Now, he'll find ways, like I said, even here, to put a promise out first, to try to make it clear. I've got good news for you. You're still welcome. You're still invited. You will worship the Father, but... Why I call this the foundation is this is her starting point. Is this the right place to worship God? No. And your worship is false. He makes those hard statements. Just as he indicted Nicodemus and the Jews behind him for their failure to realize their need of God's work, Because notice, Jesus vindicates the Jews on one sense. She doesn't know this, but he's already taken their best exemplar, the teacher of Israel, the ruler of the Jews, and the Pharisee, and made it clear his religion is insufficient. And now he speaks to this woman and those behind her. You, again, is in the you all. You all worship what you do not know. Let Let me make one other point briefly. Sincere but erroneous religion is worthless. Sincere but erroneous, in error, false religion is worthless. There's nothing to indicate the Samaritans lack sincerity. What they lack is truth and understanding. Paul says in Romans 10.2, of the Jews, I bear them witness they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And we've got, we've got to get that fixed. Jesus is going to make this clear. Worship of the Father can only be done in spirit and truth. And so it doesn't matter how worked up emotionally we get, how many tears are flowing, how many hands are raising, how loud the singing is. If it's in error, it's worthless. It's worthless. And, and our desire to want to affirm and validate, well, I know you're sincere. It's a sincerely held error. But you can be kind, but speak the truth. Speak the truth. So that's, that's the foundation of worship. She confesses Jesus to be a prophet. He answers prophetically. He holds out this wonderful promise. You and your people will worship the Father. But then there's a, a pill to swallow. But, but you and your people currently worship what you don't understand. The Jews were right. You were wrong. This hill is wrong. Jerusalem's right. And Jesus, as this prophet, is a Jewish prophet. We speak of what we know. Yes, Jesus is a Jewish prophet. That's part of what she's got to chew on and sort through. Which brings us point two, then, to the future of true worship. The future of true worship. Jesus is not done speaking yet. He has more to say. 
And he returns now to that wonderful promise he put out initially. The now and not yet. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The hour is coming, and it's now here. Now, I said before, we, are, we know from Jesus' repeated use of the term hour in his gospel that that's referring to the advent of the cross and his crucifixion and the, the age to come afterwards. Um, so even as he answers your question, doesn't dodge it, he makes it clear that this question isn't of fundamental importance because shortly it will be a moot point. Shortly it will be a moot point. The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And what does that mean, spirit and truth? And I think here's the place where we have the potential for some serious misunderstanding. I have certainly heard it taught as though spirit and truth means something like sincere not hypocritical um, worship coming from the heart. And I guess spirit here would be something like human spirit. You, you need to worship him authentic. Our culture loves, loves authenticity. You gotta do it authentically and genuinely. And you, you can't be putting on a show. You gotta be, it's gotta be the real you. And then it's gotta be in accordance with truth. Problem is one preposition governs both of these words. And the contrast is about location. In this location or that location. Not in this location, but in spirit and truth. Not in this location, but in spirit and truth. I, I think spirit and truth refer to one reality. Later in John's gospel, in John 14, 17, Jesus will say the spirit of truth. John 15, 26, when the helper comes, who I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth. So you could even translate this, worship the Father in spirit of or and or also truth, even of truth. The, the one preposition makes it clear we're probably talking about one thing. And then when you consider that, the, the notion of being in the Spirit as a location is all over the Scripture. By one Spirit, you were baptized into one body. I think what he means then is that true worship is offered in and by the Spirit. Which also means we're back to our original topic of living water. Which makes sense in my mind. Jesus is saying those who worship the Father will worship by and in the Spirit. Now the Spirit is the Spirit of truth, but then what's not in view here is your enthusiasm. What's in view here is that the Holy Spirit of God, who the Father will give, remember he gets back to, if you knew who I was, you'd ask, and he'd give you the living waters, which I argued was the Holy Spirit, welling up inside. True worshipers will worship in the Spirit, They'll worship by the Spirit. And in that sense, then, the location's unimportant. True worshipers, true worship is offered in and by the Spirit. Also notice it's plural. I, I would argue that what we're doing here this morning is exactly that. If, if you have put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've bowed the knee to King Jesus, if you've trusted him to bear your sins on the cross, to satisfy God's wrath, then you've received his spirit. You've been born by the spirit. And then you gather together with those who have the spirit and we worship God in spirit and truth by his spirit. We are worshiping God in spirit and truth is, is what I'm arguing. Um, true worship is offered in and by the spirit. 
We're back to talking about living water. We're back to clarifying what he was offering her at the beginning. Jesus masterfully is coming back around. Next point, another glorious promise. The Father is seeking such people to worship him. We talk about seeker-sensitive churches. I'm not a big fan of that approach. And part of the reason is biblically, Paul says in Romans 3, no one seeks after God. There's only one seeker, and it's God. So if you mean by seeker-sensitive church, a church that has God seeking, amen, hallelujah. God is the seeker. This goes all the way back to Ezekiel 34, one of my favorite passages, and when we get to John 9 and John 10, we will spend some time there, but in, in Ezekiel 34, God rebukes the false shepherds of Israel who are fat and lazy and don't do what they're supposed to do, and then he makes it clear after he rebukes them for their failures that he, will, he himself, the, the language is unmistakably emphatic, will do what they refuse to do. Ezekiel 34, 11 and 12, for thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered. So I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. What's remarkable here, and we'll look at this more next week, um, is that the father is seeking, but he's doing it through the son. Remember when the disciples come to him and they say, hey, have you had anything to eat? And he says, I have food you don't know about. And they say, well, who gave him something to eat? Because they're always misunderstanding him. What does Jesus say? Verse 34 of chapter 4. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. The Father is seeking such worshipers, and Jesus, always alert for his Father's business, lifted up his eyes when he got to this well, as exhausted as he was, as tired as he was, and he saw some fruit to be harvested. The Father is seeking true worshipers through the Son, even here. It's, it's gorgeous. The Father is seeking such worshipers, and the Son, always about the Father's business, is the one in this instance doing that seeking. We, I mentioned before in 2 Corinthians 5, when you open your mouth to share the gospel, God himself making his appeal through you, be reconciled to Christ. God still seeks true worshipers when his people faithfully witness. That's a glorious truth that God, God could speak through you that's how Paul frames it. And God could accomplish his purpose of seeking true worshipers. God is spirit. Next point. God is spirit. And the point here is that location is not fundamental. Location is not fundamental. And we're running short on time, but I'll be quick here. We've already covered the foundation for how Jesus can make claims like this in John 2. If you remember in John 2, turn back there really quickly. In John 2, Jesus made it clear that he supersedes, replaces, is the true temple. This is the basis upon which Jesus can make a claim like this. The, the foundation has been laid. Verse 19 of chapter 2, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews said to him, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. 
When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Because Jesus is the reality the temple points to, Jesus can now predict a future time when location's not going to matter. That's how you can have the fact, no, J- Jerusalem was the right place in that time of salvation history. Yeah, I know, it was. It wasn't optional. Location won't matter. It did matter. Faithfulness to what God has said did matter. But a time is coming, an hour is here and coming, now and not yet. We live on the now side where location doesn't matter, right? Where, where can we worship God? What's the geopolitical center of the church? And if you say America, you fail. No, the church has no geopolitical center. God's people in spirit and in truth gather all over the world in conclaves and little churches and worship him in spirit and in truth because location is no longer a central issue. Why? Because we are in the spirit and that's then the basis that Paul begins to develop. We saw this in Ephesians. He's building us into his church. We, the church, become the temple of God. That's why location no longer matters. And again, this parallels with what Paul says in Acts 17. There's similarities in how do you witness to people who don't know God, who don't know the Messiah, who, who are pagans in their background. Listen to Paul in Acts 17, 24 to 25. The God who made this world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life, breath, and everything. God doesn't need a house. Doesn't need a building, even one with lots of gold. Now, for a time in salvation history, it pleased him to dwell in Israel in the temple, but now he is pleased to dwell in his people. So, the future of true worship will include Samaritans. God is seeking true worshipers. John Piper has a wonderful book titled Missions Exist Because Worship Doesn't. And that's part of the truth he's getting at is, is when we're reaching out to people with the gospel, we are inviting people to become true worshipers of the living God. Let's focus on the focus of true worshipers before we get to our final song. Um, the focus of true worshipers. Now, I'll, I'll move quickly here because we can pick up on this next week. Her response to this, and again, this, this signals that she's taken this. Remember, I've already said, she's called him a prophet. He gives her this encouraging promise, but then he says something that's got to sting. You and your people were wrong. You're on the wrong side of this divide. You worship what you don't know. All of your worship, all of your worship at Mount Gerizim, your temple that the Jews tore down, and all your altars, and all of that is ignorant. Moreover, your historic enemies who've treated you terribly, who've showed bigotry and hatred towards you, salvation is from them. At this point, if she rejected what Jesus said, she might say something like, well, maybe I was a little hasty in calling you a prophet. But she doesn't do that. And as we're trying to pick up on how she's responding to this, I think she receives what he says. I think what she says evidences some hope. I don't think she's quite yet convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. And the reason for that is because when she goes to her town, she doesn't say, I've found the Messiah. She goes to her town and says in verse 29, come see a man who told me everything that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? But I do think she's clearly considering maybe he is, he might be. So that's kind of how I'm framing what she says here. You're a prophet, and then Jesus speaks like a prophet. And he holds out to her, even as he says things that have got to be hard to hear, wonderful promises. You and your people will worship the Father. It's not going to matter 
this hundreds-year-old conflict is going to be moot. God is seeking people like you. You immoral, five times divorced Samaritan. And people like you and me. Praise God. Hallelujah. The focus of true worship. So she confesses then her hope. I know that Messiah is coming. He was called to Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Now, Messiah is not a figure by name who shows up that I could find in the books of Moses. Messiah means anointed. And we do see that Moses and Aaron and the priests get anointed. We can also infer from judges that anointing officials and leaders was common enough. So my guess would be that the Samaritans certainly know the Jews are looking for a coming anointed one. And there's precedent in the Old Testament for people carved out for, pointed out for service will be anointed. But what's clear to me is that she thinks, I think, I think it's clear that the coming Messiah is the one spoken of in Deuteronomy Why do I say that? Because unlike the Jews who were expecting a military conquesting, mighty, bearing a sword Messiah, that's true as far as it goes, she's she's looking for a teaching Messiah, right? She's looking for a teaching Messiah. When the Messiah comes, what's he gonna do? He's gonna tell us all things. That's perfectly in keeping with Deuteronomy 18. I'm gonna raise up a prophet for you like Moses. You're gonna listen to him. Whoever won't listen to him, I'm going to hold, hold him accountable for that. So I think her, her notion of messiahship is still tied to Deuteronomy 18. She confesses her hope and then marvel at Jesus' grace and goodness here, his glorious revelation. I who speak to you am he. This is unprecedented on the other gospels. Bear in mind, even up to the point of Jesus' trial in Luke 22, they're still asking him, tell us plainly, are you the Messiah? Jesus liked to use covert titles for his Messiahship, his favorite one being Son of Man, because Ezekiel was the Son of Man, and there's also a Son of Man in in Daniel 7. And so Jesus would speak in ways that those with eyes to see and ears to hear would get it, but also in ways that wouldn't drive him to the cross prematurely, so he didn't speak so openly. What we have here is absolutely unprecedented. Even in John 10, in our own gospel, John 10, 24, the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. To which Jesus says, I told you and you don't believe. The works that I do bear witness. There's enough for you to figure out who I am. He won't say it. He won't say I'm the Messiah plainly to the crowd. You pay attention. Look at the works I do. You should be able to figure it out for yourself. Because the claim, yes, I'm the Messiah, is the basis upon which the the high priest and the Pharisees say, then put him to death. What further evidence do we need? Kill him. And he knows that. And he's got to time the crucifixion. So his declaration to this woman, so plainly, no no ambiguity. It's just amazing. Absolutely amazing. His his only, that I can find, clear self-identification before his trial. Which brings us to the, the final point, and then we'll sing our closing song. And... Well, this really shows up in the text next week, but I just want to look at this. The woman forgets all about Jacob's water, doesn't she? Now, I don't think even in leaving, she's yet convinced Jesus is Messiah. I think she will come to faith in that, but the penny's dropping. She's doing the math. Could he be? Could he be? And, and we see, just read a little further with me, 
Just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with the woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. And all I want to close with is saying is this. If you're here today and you're not sure what to make of Jesus, Understand that that question, is, there's nothing of any greater importance. This woman, who I don't believe yet has come to believe Jesus is the Messiah, the, the confession of her mouth to the people of the town is maybe, but even the possibility that maybe this is the Messiah. She abandons her other activity. She walked all the way out in the heat of the day to this well. She left her jar of water because I've got to get to the bottom of this. If you're here today and you're sitting on the fence sizing up Jesus, what you make of him, I would urge you, to make that your top priority as well. Follow this woman's example. Nothing else is of any importance. I do believe she comes to faith. I do believe the master evangelist brings her home safely. But nothing can be more important. God is seeking worshipers even today. Consider that. I'm gonna call the worship team up. We're gonna sing our closing song and we will celebrate this glorious truth. Please stand.